0: things go in themes Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of questions today that have to do with when one parent is wanting to do one thing and another parent is doing another thing. So let's start and and sometimes that's one of the hard things to overcome. So I want to start with this question. Somebody wrote in and said, my son has been getting ABA for a year now and is making progress, which is great. Uh, They go on to write, but my husband isn't bothering to learn the techniques. Mm -hmm. I don't want my marriage to end over this, but I feel like my kid has earned the right to have us both participate Do you have any magic words that I could say to my husband to get him on board?
1: Right. That is a pretty difficult situation. I mean, not only because um, it's going to be difficult for your husband to keep up with the program. Hopefully your child is doing pretty well. Um, But also because the consistency of the program is is so imperative to the success of it. So um, everyone in the child's environment has to really know exactly what, uh, is being done in the program, how you're communicating or how not communicating, what types of behaviors are acceptable or not, what level of language is necessary, all of that needs the consistency. I don't think, I think what I would suggest is um, to have set up situations where your husband spends alone time with your child because. I think if he's able to see how you communicate, perhaps, or how your child and, and you or your child and others who are part of the program communicate, um, and then if he spends a little bit of time alone with your child, then he probably will feel himself that he needs to be more engaged. because. Typically, our kids are not going to communicate in the same way, they're going to have more behaviors with people who aren't trained, that sort of thing, at least in, in certain phases of the program. So it might just be good for him to experience that. I think a lot of times our spouses tend to just hope that we're going to manage the situation when we're present. Yeah. and so. If you're not present, um, he might have more of a motivation to try to get involved in the program. That's great advice. I mean, Uh, you know, it 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 is. is. We're all like that, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. and I think the more you try to press your spouse by just saying, you need to be involved, you need to be involved. I'm not sure that'll work. Sometimes uh, people get kind of defensive, or we're all extremely busy anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's great
0: advice. So I can remember a time, now that I think back on it, when uh, my husband said to me, why does he do this for you, and why does he do this for the therapist, and he's not doing, doing it, it for, for me. me. Right. And right. that was the beginning of him really getting the buy-in of, what do I need to learn? Exactly. Um, and so I hadn't thought about that before. But absolutely.
1: At, uh, I mean. That's That's how it happened. And and you can see there's so many really simple things that you learn through just being part of the program, you know? Uh, always get the child's attention, make sure your uh, questions or or requests are short and clear. Those types of things, you know, knowing exactly how and when to intervene with a behavior, all those types of things are actually pretty valuable. So I I think that if people have the experience and see oh, he's doing better with you than he is with me, then they're more motivated to learn. Absolutely. Great, great advice. Uh,
0: Okay, another person who wrote in said, we didn't have ABA when my daughter was diagnosed, now she's 14, Mm -hmm. and even though my state has insurance, my job doesn't have it. How can I possibly afford it? And more importantly, at her age, is it going to be worth it? Thank you. I appreciate your advice.
1: Okay. So yes, it's absolutely worth it. It doesn't matter what age. And you should, I I can't give you because I don't know what state you're in. Um, There are different types of policies, I think, that you can also purchase um, that will be sort of add on policies that will allow you to access the coverage for your state. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, our contracts department, uh, Bryce Myler, our contracts uh, directors, they're just amazing. Yeah. anyone from anywhere can call in and just send in your information and her team will check and tell you exactly what your options are for your state and I do recommend it because you know ABA is not just for early intervention people often think that mistakenly that it's only good for kids who are very young not at all in fact there's at least ten times as many publications On How ABA works for adolescents and adults as there are for younger kids? I mean so Mm. ABA generally has been the modality of intervention for adolescents and adults in all developmental disabilities For years and years the only reason that the spotlight is captured by early intervention is because a bunch of kids in early intervention actually recover yeah, so um, It's extremely important, I think, you said your daughter's 14, you know, pretty soon you're going to be dealing with, if you haven't already, teaching things that are very specific to that age, like menstruation issues and how to deal with those things, or vocational training. Yeah. And I think all of that is done through ABA, so I think it's really important for you to try to get coverage. And there was ABA uh, 14 years ago. Obviously, I've been doing it for over 30 years, but it just wasn't accessible. Yeah. And, you know, it just saddens me to hear that uh, you're in a state where there is coverage and yet you can't access this. And, you know, of course, with the with uh, the new Obamacare sort of uh, insurance changes that will be coming down soon, there, every state is choosing... A particular type of policy that they will provide to people who can't access the insurance in other ways, like let's say through their employer. And so, hopefully, your state again, this is information that our contracts department is happy to give you at CARD. Yeah. And um, otherwise, another very, very good website to get information about your insurance coverage is uh, the Autism Votes. Yes which is the autism.org, which is the autism speaks website about all the laws and issues pertaining to coverage. And, um, yeah, I think those are the main things you really should try to get some coverage, but
0: I love hearing that it is worthwhile. I think it's a great question. Mm And a lot of people have that mispronouncement. Perception that there's a boat that they missed?
1: Absolutely. No, there isn't. I mean, we have a lot of uh, children, uh, adolescents, and adults in our program mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. We're setting up uh, vocational classrooms for our adults. So, yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, wonderful. Great advice. Uh, okay, uh, an, another one having to deal with family members. My nephew is two and screams all the time. I have a child on the spectrum, and to me, let's just say I see warning signs. I tried to talk to my sister in law about it, and she informed me that. It was just the terrible twos i would love your opinion am i overreacting
1: oh gosh it's hard i mean i don't know whether you're overreacting or not because it's so hard when you see symptoms in a family member yet the parents are not uh open to the possibilities um So let's start with, you know, you can't, based on a child who's screaming, it could be just the terrible tooth. Very easily. I mean, the child could have a whole bunch of other issues going on. The child could be, could have learned simply that screaming is a very effective mode of getting my way. So all of those things could just be present and could fade off as the child ages, absolutely. Um, I would say that this is one of those situations, again, where I don't think it's a good idea to, uh, like, make the family or the parents defensive about the whole situation. After all, you know, as a parent, that it's a very difficult uh, thing to hear. Yeah. So um, I would say you should probably... Uh, just leave the situation for now if the you've mentioned it and I think that the parents are probably more cognizant of the situation now that you've mentioned this and hopefully they will um, you know talk to their pediatrician at the next checkup. Um, I find that the majority of my early uh, diagnoses, or when I have to, when I see young children who come in for diagnosis, um, are referrals by their teachers. So it's kind of like if the child's in a, in a preschool program, teachers are the ones that tend to be able to identify problems pretty fast, and then they'll they'll be the ones that talk to the parents. So you know, it's a very thin line. On the one hand, obviously, the earlier the better. On the other hand, um, it's difficult to push people and and obviously, it's very hard to do something like uh, tell a um, a family member that your child might be autistic. Yeah. You know you could if you have a very open conversation or dialogue or interaction or relationship with this family member, then I, maybe you want to go online, print out the Uh, symptoms of autism and just give it to the mom or dad and say you know these are the things that I'm concerned about if you do that you might actually just by reading the symptoms yourself um, come to the conclusion that no screaming on its own is really not a symptom. In fact screaming is not any kind of behavioral um, challenging behavior is not part of the the symptoms of autism so Really, um, that's a side effect, sort right. of. It's like comes from frustration. But really, what you're looking at is, uh, you know, delays in social behavior, delays in language, and the presence of those stereotypical behaviors. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do think that once
0: you've been through it and your child has gotten the diagnosis, it makes you hyper vigilant and oh. hyper aware. And I know for me, I I wanted to spare somebody else that. Every autism parent has a period of time that they mourn, that they go, oh, I should have realized when this happened. You couldn't, right? We all have to forgive ourselves at some point. But I do think it makes us hyper-aware and we want to spare somebody else that time. Absolutely. Um, But it isn't, we aren't always the people that, they want to hear it from
1: well and i think i mean i can completely understand that chan because imagine my life right oh, I, I mean i like sure. every child i see i instantaneously pick up on all their issues but yeah. I, it's just, um, it's, it's very, very difficult, as you know, to just, uh, and you know, it's like when you have a, let's say you're with someone and they're losing weight gradually and you see them on a day-to-day basis and you don't notice how much weight they're they're losing because it's yeah. every day, right? right? And someone else comes and hasn't seen them in a month and says, oh my gosh, you've lost so much weight. Yeah. That also plays a part in it because you're living with the child and you're managing the child and dealing with it. A lot of the child's issues and behaviors become part of your day-to-day routine because we all adjust to our kids yeah. right and deal with them differently so it's really almost impossible given the fact that we're also in denial like yeah. we don't want anything to be wrong with our kids obviously um and so we don't want to be perceived as bad parents
0: that's right and and i do think that that's part of that early when you start to notice something going on it's okay your two choices are either I'm a bad parent or something is up with my child and neither one of them is
1: acceptable that's a a fantastic point that's a really really good point it's one or the other and then so what you do is you typically will go to the professionals and you know ninety percent of the cases still to this day uh, pediatricians will uh, just say oh he's a boy He's uh, bound to be he's bound to be somewhat behind. Don't worry, let's see him again in six months. And that could be a pretty important six months period. Yeah. So you know, that's why to me, it's not so much about the, the label itself. It doesn't really matter whether the child really fits the criteria of autism or something else. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. The bottom line, and that's how you know. Historically, also the diagnostic manual, the DSM, starts by when you train in the DSM, it starts by telling you that nothing is really considered a diagnosis or a disorder unless it specifically prevents the individual from interacting mm. in a healthy manner mm-hmm. with family at work at school and so on so you know you could have a child who is who has some let's say difficulties in one area or another but it's not preventing them from all aspects of having a very effective life and mm-hmm. so really it isn't classified as a disorder mm-hmm. unless you have enough symptoms together that would prevent the child from effectively having a you know adaptive and functional life mm. so is that's why it's also like we're very cautious even for me i mean i've been diagnosing kids for i don't even know how long and When I see uh, very mild children, children who are either sort of PDD or Asperger's, I will very, I'll spend a lot of time before I make the conclusion of whether the child is within or outside the spectrum or, or actually has the diagnosis enough symptoms or not, that sort of thing. Because, you know, it, it it's hard and, and to really differentiate what's okay and what's not okay sometimes, you know. And a lot of kids, typically developing kids, will use challenging behaviors to communicate their needs. So, A lot of our kids will tantrum or scream or cry or whatever at some point, depending on their age. It only becomes kind of not good or not appropriate or not normal when the child's doing it way too much or at a later age when they're supposed to have now replaced it with language you know so there's very subtle things that we have to consider
0: Uh, well this brings up a question for me when when people talk about diagnosis and you have diagnosed a lot of people in your lifetime and because I, I, we're talking about denial and sometimes one parent being in denial. It seems like there's a lot of people in society and a lot of parents who will say, but it's a short period of time, even though it might be three to six hours that you observe the child. Mm-hmm. And that one parent will say, well, you saw them on a good day. And the other parent right. will say, well, you saw them on a bad day. Right, right. So is this really, how often do you think children actually get misdiagnosed? And is it more likely that they will underdiagnose or overdiagnose? Mm,
1: that's a really good question. So... Um, let me just think about that. With me, what I do, I never, like usually, I don't think I've ever had a case ever where the parent disagrees with me. Mm-hmm. because the way that I diagnose, I am observing, I observe the child and have some period of interaction or one of my staff is interacting so I can see the interaction occurring as well. And um, but as I interview the parents and as I get a history on the child, I'm listing for myself and checking off sort of the areas of concern, and I get a lot of detail on the areas of concern. And then if I feel that I've reached a point where these are symptomatic, like real clear symptoms, and I have enough of them, I'm not going to just tell the parent, oh, yes, your child has diagnosed with autism. Right. So I will start with these are you know what is autism let's talk about autism and let's talk about the diagnosis and let's understand the difference between you know autism and PDD and mm-hmm. all these other th- ADHD and all this sort of stuff and then let's go through these are the things I'm seeing with your child that qualify for the diagnosis do you agree like for instance you know remember we talked about that your child never really um, points to objects to show you things or share their, let's say, arts projects or something with you in terms of excitement and so on. And the parent will say, yeah, no, then my child never does that. And I'll be like, okay, so this is one of the key symptoms. Um, or, you know, you told me that eye contact, you can't get eye contact. This is one of the key symptoms, those types of things. Yeah. And I'll just explain to them, I need six symptoms. These are the ones I have. I have more, I have less, whatever. And that's why I conclude that your child has this disorder. Mm -hmm. And then I go heavily into what it means and what it doesn't mean. Mm -hmm. And and that I think is the most important thing. It's like, okay, so it means that, you know, your child has these issues. Let's figure out why we think your child has these issues. Let's talk about your child's sensory needs how do how are they interacting with this how is your child perhaps anxious and maybe that's why he's lining up all his toys and i break it down and try to explain to the family sort of you know it's one thing to just list a bunch of symptoms because then it sounds like it's some something really seriously wrong inside the child, and can we fix it? Right. And actually, the way I see it is that the child is is a you know is functioning within his or her environment and is adjusting to things in his or her environment. A lot of our kids are isolated because they have too much sensory input. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then I give them examples. I isolate myself if I am, have a migraine or something and I'm in bright light, you know. So it's just a matter of understanding it better. And then you kind of capture the meaning of it. With others, I think I get, it depends, it's funny. But if it's a funding source that's somehow associated with the diagnosis, mm-hmm. then there's a lot of underdiagnosis, yeah. right, because the minute we diagnose, then the funding source becomes responsible. Right. And if it's a, um, I think I still have a surprisingly high number of pediatricians saying, um, I don't think there's something wrong, so they're under-diagnosing, but I think that's just because they haven't received a lot of training in detecting those things. And pediatricians these days have, what, 15 minutes to observe your child? I mean, they don't have time for this. Um, So, And then there are... I think I get if there's any overdiagnosis I think it would be from within the field so like maybe psychologists or so on uh, who are not really familiar with autism right. might um overdiagnose brand new licensed people okay. you know so it's kind of like More so you will see underdiagnosis, but I mean, you know, my population is skewed as well. I rarely am the person to do the primary diagnosis. Mm. I'm usually the second opinion. Uh So in that case, um, you know, someone's already diagnosed and the parent wants to come to me to make sure. And I actually, I do have the pleasure occasionally of overturning someone else's diagnosis and saying no. This is just some behavioral stuff that we can fix. Your child doesn't have autism, you know, so that's a lovely
0: experience. I can well imagine. And I have to say, I'm struck by the fact that so many of us have not had the benefit. I did not have the benefit of you diagnosing my child. And can I tell you, it's a much different experience than what you described. What you're describing sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah, Uh, I I, sometimes I'll spend more time on just a diagnostic than any other type of evaluation just because I won't leave until the parents are on board with me, they're okay, they feel like we have a game plan, we know what we're doing, I'll stay with them for hours during that. That's the that, hardest moment yeah. of, of many of our lives. Like, how yeah. could you just give a number and leave, you know? Yeah. And yet it happens yeah. to so many of us.
0: Uh, but we're, I'm grateful that some people have the opportunity to have that, uh, that experience you. with I you. That's yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah, and
1: I just, I don't want people to give up hope. I mean, I really, that's the biggest thing for me. And you know, Shannon, yeah. like, you know, many of the parents here whose kids have grown up and are adults and recovered and doing mm-hmm. great, and they all went through the same thing, yeah. which is why it makes it much more important for me to just stick with it. And, you know, back in the 90s or 80s when we were, or early 90s when I was just seeing kids myself and diagnosing them and then treating them, um, a lot of parents would come to me and they I, there would be a huge discussion because I would say within six months, you know, I'd say, I'm pretty sure I can get your child to normal functioning, mm-hmm. and they would have a hard time because they were told by... A more senior, you know, like very well known person at some university, that their child would be lifelong within this spectrum. And a lot of those parents now come back to me and say, God, I mean, I'm so glad I listened because yeah. otherwise I would have just uh, given up on his life. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And
0: we should note, because you were talking earlier about Bryce Myler and the contract Bryce, department. She's one of those parents. That's and I always right. like to remind people that when you call the contract department, she's the head of that department, and it trickles down from her. They're an amazing department of people who work harder than— I, I, any other group Anyone. of people, and and it really, I, I always say, you know, when you want to have somebody in your corner, who better to have in your corner than an insurance expert whose child had the benefit of this therapy and is now in college yeah. and the employee of the yeah. month where he works yeah. and driving his truck? Yeah, that's the parent you want in your corner, and that is Bryce Myler.
1: Absolutely, and which she, is wonderful. she's like, yeah, let's just let's talk about her for a minute because yeah. she's, she's just someone I amazing. love. Amazing. She is amazing. It's just like uh, talking about her gives me goosebumps because she's yes. just one of those women that just takes the bull by the horns, you know, yep. whatever it is. And yeah, she's spectacular and we've been very very lucky to to have her. I mean, just ridiculously lucky, you <laughs> She's know, like wonderful. the timing of it that yeah. she came to us. She was at the uh, Anthem Wood Cross for about twenty-four years or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, her experience is ridiculous, and she knows all of autism. She knows all the laws. She's yeah. absolutely brilliant. She's a gem. She really is, and yeah. she will fight hard for you, hard for you, and she will tell you exactly
0: where you are, and and so that it's clear and concise, and you know what the next That's step right. is. And if you've seen the the documentary Recovered, Rice right. is one of the parents featured in that movie.
1: And another parent in that movie, which also I want to kind of uh, give a little hello to, is Bonnie Yates, who is an attorney in the special ed world and also absolutely fabulous as an attorney. Amazing. Has helped so many families over the years. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, she's been through the entire uh, experience herself, and uh, her son is doing Amazingly well, and we've had Nick finished on the show. Yeah, yeah, we've had him on the show, and he's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, a lot of the parents, I think, they just take their own experience and and just uh, help others in such tremendous ways.
0: It's uh, a wonderful thing to be in their company. I'm glad that we talked about both those amazing ladies. We should take a break, but we'll come back with more of your questions. Keep them coming in for Dr. Doreen Grandboucher. This is Ask Dr. Doreen. Stick with us. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grandpachet, a true expert in the field of autism. You've been Great, working sure. working in that field for multiple decades. We're not going to say how long.
1: but 1978. <laughs> but that's, the,
0: that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, when you were exactly three months old, you yeah. began working with <laughs> children on the autism spectrum. It was uh, like <laughs> but but uh, I'm so grateful that you do work with our kids. I'm grateful Thank for all the work impression. that you've done and all the people that you have trained because it had a direct impact on my life. And I've said before on the show that my child was treated here at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, right. and all the success that we enjoy, I attribute to your Thank leadership. You. I
1: really appreciate that. And you know, we just answered a question about diagnosis, mm-hmm. and I want to say, of course, that there are very, very good standardized measures in case someone has doubts. Um, you know, they can go through these tests or assessments, the child can go through. When you have a, I consider myself a pretty senior. Uh, diagnostician in this mm-hmm. field, so I don't really need to, I, I'll do the diagnosis before and then I'm 100% reliant, reliable with whatever tests the assessment center gives. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when there's a junior person who's assess or who's evaluating your child, it's often a good idea to ask for an ADOS, for instance, so that you can actually be certain one way K. or another.
0: And the ADOS, is that's the test of record right now?
1: Yes, that's pretty much right now the gold standard. Of course everything's going to be changing. I mean, there's a lot of other uh, questionnaires as well that can be mm-hmm. administered. You know, the PDDBI provides a, a diagnostic section. There, There's, depending on your child's age, there's a series, you know, the cars, the chat. There's a lot of different diagnostic tests. But, um, and as I said, you know, I, I often I guess the more important statement I want to make about diagnosis is I know as a parent we want to have some we tend to want to know a a title or a name because then certain things are attributed to it. I'm not sure I, I think I've met people who parents who um, see different things in that title for mm-hmm. instance some parents will you know you want the diagnosis and that label and some parents I think understand this is my perspective the only reason for the label is the funding yeah. that comes with it that's my I agree with that yeah. completely but then there's other parents who kinda of feel like if they have the label then it at least re- result like it's not their fault you know, yeah. so now they're there. It's not their fault. It's something that's God given or whatever, and it's out of their control. Other parents will want the label in order to, you know, that just sort of kickstarts things for them, and then they become empowered and they want to try to go forward and mm-hmm. make things happen and all that sort of stuff. So people have different reasons for wanting that label. Um, but what I always tell my parents is your only valid reason is just funding beyond that the label doesn't mean anything. And the reason that I tell them that is that since I've been in practice, the labels, the definition of what constitutes that label has changed multiple times yeah. and it's about to change again. Yeah. So what that, and I start some of my lectures with this when I speak at conferences, because <clears throat> when, when, a when a diagnosis is based on symptoms, and those symptoms, people, you know, it's by you know agreement. People right. say, "Oh, well, no, this time it should be, you know, sixteen symptoms or twelve or these six or not those six right. or whatever it is." What that essentially tells you is that we don't even know. We don't know <laughs> what we're talking about really well. And the truth is, the core symptoms. I mean, I've seen the diagnostic uh, symptoms for DSM five, and in my mind, they're not that bad. Actually, I think there's for the first time. I would agree there's an improvement okay. in how we diagnose, but overall what I'd say is it doesn't matter because it's like saying um, that someone has let's say a cold and they so the you know and that's a that's a label right right? you have uh, whatever upper respiratory infection that's a label but the truth of the matter is there's certain symptoms associated with it and what we try to do is we try to treat those symptoms you know so of course a cold is maybe not a good example because when we have like If you know it's an infection, then you can treat it medically. But generally speaking, with all of the disorders that are listed in the diagnostic the mental disorders, Mm -hmm. they're all symptom-based. And symptoms are, by definition, the result of something causing it, right? They're not causation, they're not a causative thing, they're a result of something. So great, yeah, we have these symptoms, and therefore we have this label, but what's causing each of these symptoms? Mm -hmm. That, I think, is the biggest lesson I can give to anyone who's Mm -hmm. doing diagnosis is identify the individual symptoms break them down and see what in the child's environment in their um let's say uh, biochemistry and their stress levels and their sleep what is causing each of those symptoms that you observe Mm -hmm. so when we talk about all the stereotypical things we see in autism and those are necessary for the diagnosis and they vary right they could be anything from toe walking to eye gaze to Lining up your objects to repetitively turning the lights on and off. I mean, there's a billion different yeah. ones, and they're all cl- classified as repetitive, stereotypical behaviors. Mm-hmm. Okay, <clears throat> what's causing these? Yeah. In some cases, it is really clear that they're related to anxiety. You know, it's so clear. Like the child tends to get very upset if their routine is disturbed, mm-hmm. and so therefore they become very controlling, and guess what? They're doing obsessive compulsive type of behaviors, and we call them self-symmetry or stereotypical. Right. Yeah, compulsions are stereotypical but they're related to an anxiety thing and can't, what can we do for the child to reduce his anxiety? Because I try, believe me when we do those things tend to go away. Yeah. Um, or sometimes there's other factors, you know, like the child is really not able to attend. Well, maybe that's because he's not sleeping. Yeah. Know? He's waking up 10 times a night. Yeah. So there's, there's always an underlying thing that you can try to change that'll improve things. And that's, nobody focuses on that. So that's really important, I think. And, and, and it's, easy
0: enough to get your head wrapped around that and it ends the discussion about what who's to blame what the fault is you get into action as opposed to being stuck in all those emotions and anxiety yourself as a parent I think that's what I love about that approach
1: definitely and uh, the other you know misbelief I think over the years is that our kids are mentally retarded Mm. and I would Mm. say that the vast majority of my kids are incredibly intelligent kids actually and it really boils down to They haven't learned the way that we learn from these set of environmental things stimuli that are around them. And that goes back to the sensory issue. And I try to explain that to the parents a lot. I'm like, okay, this is your child is, you know, shutting down when there's too much light or too many people in their environment or whatever it is. They're seeking out they're distracted by visual stimuli because that's what they're seeking out. So as a result of that, they don't learn the way a typically developing child learns. That's really what it is. And that's why ABA is so wonderful because you can modify it and mold it and make the child, you you adjust it to the child's way of learning. And then you gradually teach the child to come into the normal way of learning, you know?
0: And it just works. Absolutely. I was just saying this morning to somebody that early on, when I saw symptoms in my child that I didn't understand, there was a frustration in me because I was looking—just eye contact. When we lost eye contact, I was— I, I can remember a time when I held onto his arms and was looking at him and saying, look at me. And I believed in my heart that it, he was just choosing not to, mm-hmm. right? Then when I realized, oh, he can't do it. And we went and got the diagnosis for a period of time before we started working with CARD. I was in this place where I would look at behaviors and go, is that because he's choosing to do that? Or is that because he can't mm-hmm. do anything else? And when I came to the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, what I learned was that that question really wasn't valid. It. I wasn't going to get any traction with it. I wasn't going to get anywhere. But the question, the the real question was, he doesn't know how to do this. Exactly. How do we teach it
1: to exactly. him? Exactly, because and that's. Exactly. That's such an important thing you're bringing up, Shannon, because I could say today that I can't speak Chinese, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. that's the truth. I can't do it. But the truth is I can learn it. Yeah. And so it's really all about the moment in time that you say, can someone do or not do something? Mm -hmm. And, of course, our kids can't do a ton of stuff, Mm -hmm. but they can learn it. Right. And so with the appropriate modality of instruction, which is ABA, the kids can learn pretty yeah. much anything.
0: Yeah, and then that's when the hope comes in. And you go, okay, I can work with that. If he doesn't know how to do this, I can teach him. I just have to find some new ways of teaching it, and you guys taught us that. Definitely.
1: ABA. And and I think, you know, it is it's such a such a glimmer of hope, I guess, when you see the first few things that your child is mastering. Mm-hmm. And really it's only because they were taught the right way, yeah. right? What really makes me sad, Shannon, is when I have parents who have given up on everything, and the, when when they've given up, uh, it's because what they've received was inadequate in some way. So you know, when you have parents who say I'm just, I'm so done I did ABA for three years Mm -hmm. and you're looking at it and you realize oh my gosh, no, you know, they did two hours a week of ABA for three years and that's just so sad because it's not going to make a change or, you know, they did an ABA but it wasn't really quality or uh, somebody was doing something else and this often happens in school settings um, and it wasn't really ABA and the parents were told, this is ABA, you don't need to get additional ABA. Yeah. You know, that sort of, sort of stuff is just that's injustice. It is. That is, is injustice. Yeah. It is.
0: And and what's especially heartbreaking is the moment when the parent realizes that and the, and just the grief that comes with the lost time. Right. Uh, thinking that you were doing something. But I, I love, and we mentioned this uh, a couple of weeks ago, that on the Center for Autism and Related Disorders page, www.centerforautism.com, there is a page that details what to look for in a quality ABA program. Mm-hmm, I think so, yeah. And, and that you guys can check that out. If, you, if you're if you having ABA and you feel like progress isn't happening, check that out. It's really informative document. Okay, we should continue on. Uh, oh, this is a very interesting one. Uh, my 12-year-old son has no interest in hygiene. I've been cutting his toenails mm-hmm. and standing over him brushing his teeth for his whole life, along with other things. How do I get him to do these things correctly and independently? I even have to remind him to wipe his butt and flush the toilet.
1: Right. 12 right right so um the first thing is there is no real motivation for him to do these things everything with aba has to start with where's the reinforcer Mm -hmm. with us you know typically developing i guess we find reinforcers in things like being socially appropriate because we have friends and we don't want you know we want to fit in and we want to avoid embarrassment Mm -hmm. and we want to make our parents proud Mm -hmm. and all of those are our rewards that's Mm -hmm. what motivates us to learn and do things otherwise Mm -hmm. who cares everybody Mm -hmm. should just stay in bed and you know (laughs) have no hygiene right Um, because social interaction is rewarding for us we want to get out all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. for our kids that's not the same thing so where is the child's motivation especially uh, because you take care of him, right? So one thing is, your child's probably not motivated to look good because, you know, they're not really all that aware of all the other people out there. So why should I look good? Um, why should I even keep clean? Because they've never really gone to a negative level of hygiene where it's bothered them or hurt them. Because you, as a good parent, take care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, why should I do any of these things? Like, what's the reason for all this stuff? So the child. Isn't internally motivated to fix this. And whenever they do get to a point where it's really not hygienic, you take care of the situation. So, for instance, you will help wipe the child and so on, and he's not even a child anymore, but you take care of his needs. So, mm-hmm. two things have to happen here. One is, Um, someone has to go through each of those different uh, activities and teach them, um, very, very gradually. Um, and when those, so for instance, you know, brushing teeth, Mm -hmm. that's a whole process that we will teach and it is, you can do it with what's called backward chaining and backward chaining is for instance, you do all the steps involved. What are the steps involved in brushing teeth? So, you know, I take my toothbrush, I take, or I take the toothpaste, I open it. So I put the top down. I take my toothbrush. I put some on there. I put the toothpaste back or close the top, put it back. Then I put some water on there and then I brush my teeth. And then the whole brushing of the teeth itself is something to learn yeah. as well. So backward chaining means that you as the teacher or the therapist do all those steps until the very, very last step. Mm-hmm. So you do all of it, and you actually might even start the brushing, but you allow the child to finish it, mm-hmm. okay, great. Then they get a huge reward for that, mm-hmm. and you have to de- decide uh, together with your 12-year-old what is an appropriate reward, and please be sure that the reward has to work for him, not for you. Right. So it's not it's something that you think is rewarding, right. but it's something that he finds rewarding, and it needs to be something that he doesn't have free exposure to all the time. Right. Because when we have things all the time, they lose Value, So they have to be things that are valuable and he doesn't have access to them and he really wants them. And then he gets it for let's say 5 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever is appropriate for that particular item. And then the next day, or a few days, you know, once he's mastered that last phase without you having to prompt it too much, then you leave out the last two stages. So you'll do everything again, but now his hand is here, and he's the one supposed to put it in his mouth and brush. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. That's mastered the next stage. You do everything except put it under the water, and he's supposed to do the last three now, and he does the last four and the last five, and gradually, it's called backward chaining. Gradually, he'll learn to do the whole process. Mm Now you can help in many other ways too, for instance you can take pictures of every stage and you can put the pictures up on the board and you can point to the pictures like on his mirror so he knows what stage he's at. So these are all different techniques that we use in ABA and it's very easy and and you should easily within a week maybe uh, have the child brushing his teeth and that's not a big deal. And then you go through and, well I would probably start with the wiping first because that's the most important at this point, but each of those things have to be taught in a very step-by-step manner so your child is reinforced and learns and is successful in them. Mm -hmm. And then the pattern of, you know, like, let's say, you could then change the schedule on the mirror and say these are the three things I want you to do. You know, Mm -hmm. wash your hands, wash your face, and brush your teeth, and then Mm -hmm. you have a list for him. At the same time that he's picking up these skills you have to stop doing what you're doing so every stage that he masters this is very important you stop doing yeah he masters and you stop doing because if you keep doing it it essentially you're enabling him to not have to do it mm-hmm. so um, that's how the process works and every behavior is maintained by those two principles of like you know am I motivated to do it and am I getting rewards for it and if you can put those two things Together than anything can be taught,
0: and what I'm struck by is it seems like there's a whole host of things. There's the the cutting the fingernails, there's the wiping, there's the toothbrushing, washing your face, combing your hair, showering, whatever all these things are, and it seems what you just described is very patient and slow, it seems like to me. Mm. Would you do one or two of those at the same time, or would
1: you just... It just depends on what the child's doing in the rest of their world, right? I mean, so I don't know what the child's schedule is, so if you have, uh, um, and are you working on other aspects, like language, or Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Typically, if I have someone in my care, then I would do one of the self-help or adaptive skills and then at the same time I'd be doing some language skills and I'd okay. be doing some social skills and stuff like that you know outside okay. leisure skills perhaps and those types of things and when this is mastered I go to the next okay. it also is more a little bit more confusing for the child if you're trying to do two different things at the same time within the same area but not really I mean wiping is a very different behavior than let's say brushing teeth right so you could potentially have those two programs running parallel mm-hmm. but you just want to make sure that you don't Always, always the success to behavioral intervention is whatever teaching there is has to balance out with the rewards, right? Yeah. So if you have too many things going on and not enough reinforcers or rewards, then your child's going to freak out, throw a tantrum, it's not going to work. Yeah. Anytime you see a child reacting negatively to a behavioral intervention, that means the balance between demands and rewards is just not there. So the the rewards are too low and the demands are too high. You balance that out and everything becomes okay. Okay. Um, Anytime you see a child who's not paying attention or is just not caring too much, then there's like that boredom factor. Mm -hmm. That means there's probably too much reward and not enough demand. Ah. So it's kind of like you have to maintain that balance throughout awesome
0: yeah that's awesome okay uh oh love this question too do you recommend giving our kids music lessons are there certain instruments that are better easier for our kids to do uh and do we need to find a special teacher or somehow prep the instructor
1: yeah uh okay so i love for some of our kids to get involved with music i um the way that i approach that is that usually I really want to find a particular area that the child is really good at mm-hmm. and really support it, promote it, strengthen it yeah. because, you know, we we talk about our recovered kids and we say, oh, they accomplished so much, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the vast majority of our kids accomplish a lot. Not all of them recover. Yeah. Um, in, in all cases, whether it's a child on the spectrum or not, it doesn't really matter, every child has to have something within which they shine. Yes. Right? That is like the most... Every human being, actually. So the most the best thing you can do for your child is identify what that thing is that makes them special, different, and that they can get really good at. Yeah. Like I see my kids, they all have different areas, you know, mm-hmm. that they're really amazing. And there's no competition because they, that is their own skill. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the skill of the entire world or family or whatever (laughs) so it's really important to try to get your child's um to find out what your child's interested in i mean i have children who are spectacular on the piano just Mm -hmm. spectacular Um, and i am not a musician unfortunately i used to play piano when i was younger but i didn't go beyond that and i'm sure that music uh people who are educated in music will probably be able to give you some more guidance in terms of what instruments should come first in general my belief is or or what i've learned is that piano seems to be one of the very good ones or you know because the notes are separated and Mm -hmm. into sections and so on but it doesn't really matter i mean some like as we were just talking before about one of our Uh, beautiful little guys who's an incredible uh, drummer. Yes. You know, and I always love that with um, Logan because he, when he was really little, one of his self stimulatory behaviors was this. Ah. uh, I have footage of him doing this a lot, right? And this, like a lot of this. And of course, now he's turned, it's a very, very functional and adaptive Mm -hmm. skill because he drums like crazy. It's just amazing. I love that. Yeah. Um, So, We have to find what our kids' interests are, just Mm -hmm. like any other child. Any other child. You have to find what their interests are, and yes, then encourage it. Um, Special teaching is the same principles as I just talked about before. Yeah, it's possible, depending on the level of your child. Some of our kids are so brilliant and actually so talented that they will go to a piano class and, um, you know, one of my kids had this whole process where we weren't even sure what he's into. We knew that he really loves music, so parents and I talked about it and I suggested why don't you take him to piano lessons. You know, within a year, he was at concerto level. So like, wow. With him, I know for sure that he went above and beyond normal teaching, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't, not only did he not require specialized instruction, he was, this was like natural to him. Wow. Then other kids, there are where you need to break it down and go slowly. But I will say that. Um, I've seen a lot of children who have a, a, an acute sense of hearing notes and being able to replicate what they hear. Um, one of my little guys that I used to work with myself a few years ago, maybe five or ten years ago, literally you could just play anything. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, 20 notes of anything and he would immediately play it. Wow. So, yeah, the kids awesome. are amazing. They're yeah. so talented, some of the kids. Absolutely. And then the other kids, of course, just to make sure, like are beautiful artists. Yeah. Right? I mean, painting, and they just they have incredible talent in that area. So you really have to just follow the child's talents. Okay, absolutely yeah. great advice. Uh
0: Oh, we're out of time. I can't believe we're out of time already. That was was That was very fast. Uh, But we'll be back more with next week with Dr. Doreen Grandbouchet, where you can keep your answers coming. We'll save the rest of the questions and we will get to the bottom of them at some point in some century. We will try. Uh, (laughs) We will.